This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Aquarium Mania. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Anon, speaking to you from the University of Florida IFAS Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory. Thanks for joining us. Coral reefs are considered the rainforests of the sea, dense hotbeds of biodiversity and beauty. Covering less than 1% of the ocean floor, they're believed to contain about 25% of all known marine species. It's no wonder that interest in reef keeping, as well as advances in reef tank technology, have increased exponentially over the past 10 to 15 years. My guest today, Chris Meckley, is an aquarist with a passion for the aquarium hobby and a blue thumb for coral keeping. Chris and his wife Amanda own and run ACI Aquaculture, a highly successful and well-known coral aquaculture and wholesale facility in Plant City, Florida. Join us as Chris shares his story and begins part one of our series, Reef and Coral Keeping 101. We'll be right back after these messages. Take a bite out of your competition. Advertise your business with an ad in Pet Life Radio podcasts and radio shows. There is no other pet-related media that is as large and reaches more pet parents and pet lovers than Pet Life Radio. With over 7 million monthly listeners, Pet Life Radio podcasts are available on all major podcast platforms. And our live radio stream goes out to over 250 million subscribers on iHeartRadio, Odyssey, TuneIn, Stitcher, and other streaming apps. For more information on how you can advertise on the number one pet podcast and radio network, visit PetLifeRadio.com slash advertise today. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. My guest today is Chris Meckley, owner of ACI Aquaculture, a coral aquaculture and wholesale facility in Plant City, Florida. Hey, Chris, thanks again for uh, spending time with us today. No problem, Roy. I'm always happy to help out when I can. And definitely appreciate Chris has been a very great mentor for many uh, students we've had over the years, and he's kind of helped educate them on on coral and coral reefs. So let's start with the questions. And, you know, um, if you've listened to any of my previous podcasts, I always like to get a little bit personal at the beginning. Do you remember what your very first aquarium was and what was in it? I'll never forget it. It was a 29-gallon aquarium. My dad had me um, start helping taking care of it. Um, it was freshwater. That aquarium was at the house when I was you know, younger. It was like seven or eight. And then when we moved into our new home, my grandfather built a stand for it. And me cleaning it and taking care of it got water on the stand. And my grandfather had a solid wood top. And uh, it warped and cracked it. And all the water went to the basement. So that was my first aquarium. I learned a lot from that first aquarium. And then, of course, you know, the addiction um, for fish back then when I was a kid um, just continued to grow. And we ended up with uh, 55 gallon aquariums all around the basement and breeding African cichlids and discus and all that other stuff. So um, it's pretty cool how it evolved out to what we are today. It's amazing. So, how did you get involved professionally in the hobby? What did you do like right before? And then, how did you get into, you know, working as a professional in the aquarium industry? Well, when um, my first job was working at an aquarium shop up in Pennsylvania, York, Pennsylvania, 
as in, you know, when I was a lot younger in my early teens, I would go around all the shops. My dad would have every Friday, we'd go around and see all the shops and um, we'd pick up fish and just, or even just go to enjoy things. Um, you know, it was something my dad and I got, you know, got to do it every Friday. It was great. I started working for one of those shops um, at the age of 16 and um, then uh, worked at another shop after that shop closed up. And then um, my real professional career started down here in Florida when we moved down here. And I started working for um, friends of yours, friends of mine, 5D Tropical, the Diaz's. And I, uh, I was uh, tasked to um, put together their local facility when they were going into, um, instead of being just a distributor, selling wholesale as well to local shops. I actually um, put together that entire facility, plumbed every single aquarium. You know, it was uh, you know, a good learning experience and learning the uh, commercial aspect of the industry through 5D. Then I um, couldn't sit on my butt after they took me out of, that, out of that and put me into sales. I was not, I was always good at sales with everything, you know, with my sales career before I got back into the industry. There's a gap there from me moving from Pennsylvania down to Florida where I was in sales um, for a few years. But when I got back into it, it was with 5D mainly. And um, they put me in sales again. And I was sitting on my butt like I am right now. And it's not me. I'm a go-getter. I'm the type of person that wants to have my hands wet all the time and wants to be in the water. So I ended up buying a shop in Tampa and uh, had a bad partner that didn't work out. And um, well, then I got this harebrained idea to start this company with a $10,000 loan from Discover Card. And um, that was in 2007. It was actually started in January 2007. And we incorporated in May, May 23rd of 2007. And here we are going to be 16 years, May 23rd, 2023. Yeah, that's incredible. And yeah, I, I remember uh, visiting you when you first had uh, big tanks in your garage many, many, yes. many years ago. <laughs> yeah, many, many years. That's over 10 years ago. <laughs> yeah. How did you get your wife, Amanda, involved? Was she always interested in working with you or was that? She found me. She found me and asked me out on a date when, we, when I was working at Tony's Tropical Fish in York, Pennsylvania. Um, she was setting up an aquarium and um, she came in. I helped her out a bunch of times. And um, then she uh, brought her buddy that she grew up with, her, her best friend, Freddie. And, and uh, she, <laughs> she got the nerve to ask me out on a date. And um, we went on a date. And um, here we are today. That was in 1998. And then did you have to convince her to work with you on the, in the company or was that something she wanted to do? She had her gig that she was doing. She was um, she was an accountant, controller for a company. And um, no, she had every intention of just continuing doing what she was doing. She supported me 100%. What my, um, you know, my dreams were was to, you know, build this, you know, wholesale facility, an aquaculture facility. And it just by chance happened that, you know, in 2009, after two years of being incorporated, that I basically ran the business, took care of my daughter um, while she worked over, you know, in Clearwater. She would leave late in the morning and not get home till late at night. And, she supported everything I did, and um, she uh, ended up getting another job over here on this side of the um, the pond, per se. Um, not in Clearwater, it was over, and she worked for a company that was really hit hard by the uh, market crash back in 2009, and she was um, one of the first to go. And when she lost her job, we looked at each other, and we're like, what are we going to do? ACI is in its infancy. We're not going to, uh, it's going to be hard for us to make ends meet. And um, sure enough, we worked great as a team together with her accounting background and her you know, ability to really manage money better than my ability to manage money. Um, you know, and my passion for the, uh, the corals, we work really well together. She had passion for them as well because she, you know, supported me every step of the way with every aquarium that we had. 
in our home and um, turned the garage into the, to ACI and uh, got rid of the aquariums in the home. And once she lost her job, she went 100% full bore onto a ACI and helped me, you know, work out some of the issues that I couldn't figure out. And um, here we are today. She uh, she understands the business just as much as I do. She knows her corals extremely well. She basically is my right hand, you know, and then Daniel's my left hand. And then I got another guy that's my right leg or left leg. <laughs> You know, yeah. it's uh, been amazing, uh, the journey on getting ACI to where we are today with all the hiccups that we've had in, in the road. And um, we're here. We love it. And we're going to keep going. And thank uh, you for all your help that you've given us because I would have never met you if I didn't work at 5D. Um, <laughs> that was where you you worked there for a while. And, you know, it's kind of funny how it's such a how, how small the world really is, you know. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Thanks. I, I've got a lot more personal questions and we're going to hit some of those, I think. And because we're going to do this as we are, you know, discussed in a, a multi-part kind of series. So I kind of want to move us on now into the Coral 101 parts. So I know you have a really kind of great sort of outline that you'd like to work with with the, the hobbyists. I'm kind of using that as a little bit of um, our sort of framework. So for this first part, we're going to maybe talk a little bit about equipment and accessories, but I wanted to kind of ask you some intro questions. So you know how it works sometimes. Somebody's watching a, a nature show. They see coral, coral reefs, maybe walked into an aquarium store. Now they want to open up a coral reef tank. So, so what are some really kind of big picture considerations that you would tell, and there's a couple of different groups of hobbyists. So I was thinking your hobbyist first, who's never had an aquarium, a hobbyist maybe who has only kept freshwater fish before, and then maybe a hobbyist who's only had marine fish, but never had any uh, coral or reefs. H how would you kind of talk to each of those people? Well, when it comes down to somebody that was um, that brand new into the industry, and actually this goes to everybody that's, you know, if, you, if you're brand new and you want to go saltwater straight away, or if you have freshwater and you want to graduate to saltwater, this fits both of those categories. Stick with one person that you trust to get your advice, because if you don't, the money pit will become a true money pit. Take advice from one person, and it doesn't mean you take advice from that person and then you find out that, you know, there is somebody else that you would like to take advice from that you think does a better job. It doesn't mean you, you kick that person to the side completely. But mixing up a bunch of different ways and methods is going to be an extremely difficult process for anybody getting into a saltwater aquarium because there's a lot of ways you can keep a saltwater aquarium and um, they all work. And so mixing all those different ways is something that I steer everybody away from because mixing some of the methods are usually sometimes in some cases, okay, but then there's other cases where it's just not going to work out and you're going to end up with um, throwing a lot more cash at it. And it's not an inexpensive hobby to be involved with. So, you know, that is um, something always to think about is, you know, the expense that it is, a saltwater aquarium is, and of course this has changed over the last, you know, 15 years, it's gotten to be quite a bit more expensive with all this really cool gear that's out there. And personally, I'm so old school. I don't deal with the, the, the gear. I'm not a big, you know, for a hobbyist, the hobbyist at heart sticks with the method that I've known for decades. And it's going to be hard to steer me away from those things because of the fact that you have, instead of it just being metal halide T5, like it was when I got into the industry, you have, you know, all this fancy gear that runs off. You can use apps to control and, and LEDs and there's, there's just so many different things and aspects that can change how a reefer actually grows with the industry. It can be a little bit more difficult nowadays if you use these fancy equipment that has an app for this pump, an app for these lights. It can make things confusing, but if that's what you're into, then go for it. So basically, stick with one person that you trust their advice on how to maintain and set up the aquarium. Personally, keep 
but as simple as possible. I found that all this expensive gear sometimes gets in the way of what we really want to do. And we spend our money on this fancy setup and it bleeds us dry from being able to even afford to put animals in it. And that's part of the thing that I think the industry needs to take a big step backwards because new hobbyists don't need all this fancy exotic gear to take care of their aquarium. They need to keep it basic, keep it simple. You need an aquarium, you need a sump, you need a protein skimmer. I recommend getting a control system like an Apex or a Hypes so that you can actually, you know, that's the one control thing that is very good and is a useful tool because it can help you tremendously when it comes to maintaining the levels. So Chris, yeah. So let's kind of break some of that down a little bit before you get into too much detail right now. Um, but first of all, I wanted to ask with the big question, kind of ballpark estimate, what do you think is a reasonable amount of money that a beginning reef hobbyist might end up spending, you know, kind of maybe low end to maybe moderate, what kind of pricing or total cost would you say would be involved? You can't hold me a hundred percent to this because I'm really not on the retail side of it at all. And I haven't priced an aquarium or anything like that in a long time, but it all depends on the level you want to start off with. And, you know, a nano aquarium is what a lot of people start off with and they can actually be a little bit more difficult to take care of if you want certain types of coral in there. The bigger you go, the easier it is for you to maintain because the more water volume you have, the less fluctuations you have. So in a nano aquarium, something, you know, 30 gallons, you're looking at, you know, roughly a thousand dollars for the initial setup. And that's just guesstimating because I remember when I had my shop, you know, you could buy a nano tank full setup. We'd sell full setups for around, you know, $700 that would have the coils and everything in it and a basic package of additives and stuff like that that would need to go into the, into the system to maintain it. As you go bigger, you can see it's going to get quite a bit more expensive. Again, it all depends on the gear, but if you keep it simple, a 250-gallon or 220-gallon aquarium, you know, that's a big jump from a 30-gallon, but you're looking at, you know, probably between five dollars and $6,000 minimum, and you can get up in, if, with all the fancy gear, you can get up in a, a lot more money invested in your system than that. But again, go with what your budget says and um, follow the advice of basically, you know, one person. If you're dealing with an aquarium shop, be mindful that they're out to make money and they're going to sell you all this fa the fancy gear. If you have a good idea of what you want when you go to the aquarium shop, you know, it's going to help probably save you some money by, by listening to somebody that you trust that's outside of a shop that has somebody trying to sell you all the fancy gear or you ask the right questions. That's key is asking the right questions. Um, you're on a budget. You don't need all the fancy gear. Let's keep this as simple as we can. And then they can take you into the right, steer you in the right direction for what you're looking for. So let's start with tanks. I mean, you mentioned a little bit or talked a little bit about that already. Can you kind of briefly give us your preferred good minimum size? You said was 30 and you talked a little bit about it, but pros and cons, you know, glass versus acrylic location. Give us a little bit of feedback on all that. Well, you know, an acrylic aquarium is something for if you're new into it and you've never had an acrylic aquarium, they can be, you know, you're going to be really cautious in the beginning with them because if you get a little bit of sand stuck somewhere, you can scratch the aquarium. Um, that is the only downfall to acrylic. They're crystal clear. They look amazing. Personally, I've always been a glass guy. We don't use glass in here because we farm. It's a, it's all fiberglass, but that's not something anybody wants to have in their home is a fiberglass tank that you can't see through. So go with, um, you know, what's in your budget. I mean, Glass is usually a little bit more expensive, but less of a chance of having issues with scratching the aquarium. So you're going to get coralline algae growing as your aquarium matures. Scraping it off of a glass aquarium with a razor blade is sim 
scraping coralline algae off of an acrylic tank is not nearly as easy because you have to get the proper equipment so that you do not scratch your acrylic because coralline algae is a calcified algae which will grow and be on there and it takes some effort to get it off so my personal would be glass over acrylic now the bigger you go of course the more expensive glass gets and once you get into the 500,000 gallon range Acrylic is more practical in most cases, unless you have deep pockets. Um, and most of the time you have to have those aquariums built in your home if you're looking at a thousand gallons, because of course, you know, to get it in there is going to be a nightmare, unless you have one that's specifically built to go through doorways, which is about 30 inches wide. And that makes it very hard to make a very large aquarium. So personally, it's, it's glass over acrylic with a reef aquarium. With a fish aquarium only, acrylic's usually um, a good way to go because you're not going to have all those calcified algaes growing because most, in most cases... You're not keeping the parameters of a reef aquarium in a fish-only aquarium, even though it's recommended you keep some of those parameters very similar as a reef because the fish came from the reef. And it only makes perfect sense to keep the parameters right so the fish can thrive instead of just survive. And you said you thought 30 is a good minimum size. Any um, feedback on maybe something a little bigger that you think the water quality will be a little better, but still not going to break the bank? Yeah, 75 to 110 gallon aquarium is a really good size because you have a, a bigger footprint to work with when it comes down to aquascaping. When you're talking about a smaller aquarium, like a 30 gallon, you know, you've got very minimal amount that you can actually put into it, especially when it comes to fish. Um, it's a big misconception that people, um, because it's an aquarium, you can put a small fish. Well, how big does that fish get? You have to make sure you're, you're mindful of the animal itself when you're putting it in there. So if you want tangs, and, you know, a lot of the fish that like everybody wants, you know, uh, a blue tank, like a dory, they're not really ideal for something smaller than, say, a 90-gallon aquarium. And even that, as time goes on, is a little bit small for that, that fish because they do get between 8 and 12 inches, if I remember correctly. I think it's the biggest one I've ever seen. So that's something we'll get into down the road with, you know, stocking the aquarium, you know, for the size that you have. You have to make, just make sure that, you know, the store, when you go to purchase that fish, isn't going to just sell you the fish to sell this to make the sale. They got to make sure that they're asking you the right questions, whether or not that fish is going to be suitable for the aquarium size that you have. Okay. So I wanted to talk a little bit more now about uh, a couple other areas, sump, lighting, pumps, and a heater chiller, but let's start with a, a sump. Can you explain to folks that maybe don't have an idea what a sump is and why it's important and what sort of like parameters you would want to use for sizing it? A sump is extremely important in a saltwater system. Um, actually, they're, they found that they're really important in freshwater systems too, um, but aren't necessary. They aren't even necessary for a saltwater system, but the overall health of your system is better because you end up having, the sump is basically where all of your filtration equipment would be, be, be stored. It goes underneath your aquarium. So getting an aquarium that has that's drilled for a sump is, or a, a reef-ready aquarium is what we call it, that has a built-in overflow. That way, your surface gets skimmed on your aquarium and where proteins and waste tend to congregate in an aquarium is at the surface. So having your surface being skimmed and all of that being removed from the surface makes the light penetration better for one, and it keeps your tank more clear and brighter. Also that surface skimming then goes into your sump where you have your protein skimmer. Your protein skimmer is basically equivalent to the wave action of the beach. When a wave crashes, and curls and catches that air pocket, all those air bubbles get smashed into billions of little itty bitty bubbles. And they're positively and negatively charged, which then attract the proteins or an easy way to put it, if people don't know what I mean, fish urine, fish poop that are broken down and into nitrates, basically is what the reason why you get nitrates and phosphates in your water. That will go into your sump, then your protein skimmer will work on removing it 
as well as you have, you know, other biomedia that can be in your sump as well, even though I don't recommend biomedia in your sump because you have that all in your aquarium. So any equipment basically that you would want to add to your system, you would keep it out of the visual view of your aquarium and all you're enjoying is the beauty of your aquarium and your filtration equipment will be below where you're then it drains the water down, pumps the water back up, filters it while it's down there. And some people even turn the sumps into say like a refugium type deal, which they can reverse the light, which will help balance the pH a little bit better because you have photosynthesis going on 24 hours a day and not just 12 hours while your lights are on your system. Okay, well, we're going to talk a little bit more next about lighting, but let's take a short break and we'll continue our discussion of reef tanks with my guest, Chris Meckley, owner of ACI Aquaculture in Plant City, Florida, after these messages from our sponsors. How many of you have pets? My hand's raised. Now think about how lucky you are to have such a sweet little pet in your life. And that pet is lucky to have you too. But unfortunately, there are countless pets out there that don't have a home to call their own. However, Bob's from Skechers is trying to change that. So we developed Bob's for dogs and cats to help pets in need. With every purchase of adorable Bob's footwear or fun, stylish apparel, or even the cutest Bob's pet accessories, Skechers makes a donation to Petco Love to help save shelter pets. And with your help, we've already saved the lives of over 1 million pets and raised over $7 million. So while you're getting style and comfort with features like Skechers' famous memory foam cushioning, you're also helping to save an adorable pet in need and helping another lucky owner be connected with a future best friend and companion because happiness is having a loving pet by your side. Find Bob's at a Skechers store, Skechers.com, select pet co-locations, or wherever stylish footwear is sold. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Pet We're back and continuing our conversation with my guest, Chris Meckley, coral guru and owner of ACI Aquaculture in Plant City, Florida. So, Chris, you were talking a little bit about sumps, and as kind of the next important component, uh, I wanted you to tell us a little bit about lighting. Now, lighting is really pretty complicated for reef systems, and there's, as you mentioned a little bit earlier, a lot of different types of lighting. If you can kind of touch a little bit on lighting, and, and um, you know, this could probably just take you know several hours, but kind of distill it into some of the important considerations for uh, that new reef hobbyist, that would be great. One of the things, you know, lighting is, you know, one of the key. There's, we always say there's three key components of a reef system. One of them is lighting, and then we have flow and we have um, water parameters. But we'll touch base on the lighting. Lighting is so important. You know, corals themselves um, are animals, and they have a symbiotic relationship with zooxanthellae that lives in their coral, in their tissue. And without the zooxanthellae, it is, the coral basically would be white, which is basically a bleached coral. And we hear about this all the time. So lighting alone is super important to keep that zooxanthellae happy so that it can produce sugars to feed the, the coral itself. Again, lighting is key for the success of a reef aquarium. It's one of the three key in, in, ingredients for a successful reef. So I say to everybody, you know, purchase the light that you can afford, not what the store wants to sell you. There's a lot of different lighting situations, uh, lighting lights that are out there. You have some really high end that are really, really controllable. Then you have all the way down to some basic lights. The thing with the industry nowadays is everything has gone towards LEDs um, and they've removed the whole metal halide and T5 aspect of it. So you got to be mindful of the LED that you do purchase because you know, they're not all created equal and they're evolving still to this day. 
I'm not a big fan of LEDs personally, but for hobbyists, they work out great. And getting a good quality LED that you can use, if you like the fancy gear and you want to be able to get on the uh, app and you want to be able to control you know, the sunrise, sunset effect, there's a lot of lights out there that can do that for you. They tend to run a little bit more money, which can be one of the most expensive parts of your aquarium when you're purchasing it, where lighting used to be one of the cheapest parts of the aquarium when you purchased a setup for a new setup. So I have no preference on any of the LED lightings that are out there. Okay, I, I do. I have one. <laughs> it's the uh, Coral Care, but they're not aesthetically pleasing. And it's a matter of whether you want aesthetically pleasing or whether you want something that works extremely well, like I do. The aesthetically pleasing stuff is going to be quite a bit more expensive for the hobbyist to get, but they're also going to be able to do a lot more with it. So lighting alone, personally, T5s and metal halides are the way I go, and that's what we use in here at ACI at the farm. Um, but we do incorporate LEDs in as well. So I can't recommend any specific manufacturer other than the one I like, which is the Coral Care. And then if you just want accent lights for the, the lighting that you do have, the Reef Bright bars are very inexpensive and they work extremely well too and show the coral pop, which is, um, of course, what everybody loves about Reef Aquariums is the, the fact that corals glow under certain lighting. So um, keeping your lighting simple in the beginning as a new hobbyist is probably a good way to go because it's not going to break your bank. If you want to go all in, then by all means, go with the fancier ones or go with something simple like a T5 fixture which is plug and play. You plug it in, turns on, turns off. LEDs can have some programming aspects to it. So it's a matter of what you want to get into. Um, I personally keep everything as simple as possible because it's been working for decades and it still works. What do you think about, you know, again, sort of things like the wavelengths or the heat generation, that sort of thing among the different types? Wavelengths are extremely important. I mean, that's the most important part of lighting, um, you know, and that's why I still like my metal halides and my T5s because you get a, you get a true full spectrum lamp with metal halides and T5s. They're harder and harder to come by. T5s, not so much. I mean, you can get them fairly easily. I mean, most shops still have T5s, but whether or not they have the fixtures available is a different story. Some shops do, some shops don't. But uh, the thing that we found with LEDs, and I've been working with Tulio from Reapbrite on this because he's the, the light guru, and um, I've learned a lot about light. And as everybody knows, the sun is the base of all life on this planet. Without the sun, we're all, we're not here. And the sun puts off full spectrum lighting from infrared all the way down to ultraviolet. And LEDs have yet to prove that they give you any infrared whatsoever that penetrates, you know, below a, a few inches from the lamp itself. Same with ultraviolet. Ultraviolet doesn't go very far from most LED brands out there. And um, metal halides and T5s all put infrared and UV off. And we found that with um, a spectrometer, we're reading UV and infrared, infrared not so far below the surface of the water, but it still penetrates into the water. And there are aspects of infrared that are very beneficial. Again, the sun puts it out. Why are we eliminating it from our lighting scenarios that are in our aquariums? What is it going to cause? And we've been doing a lot of studies on that. And I don't want to get too detailed onto that for a new beginner, but for a hobbyist, LEDs work really well. But in time, we don't know what the downfall of not having infrared and UV is going to be. And I think I've already figured some of it out. But the T5s are a good balance for anybody that's setting up a burning. You just have the main LED lights. If you put a T5 on either side of it, you're going to get some more aspects and more broad spectrum lighting out of it, which will be very beneficial for your aquarium and the corals. Um, we found it works extremely well in here for us. T5s, actually, we put up more metal halides because, you know, I'm a, I've always loved the metal halides. It's full spectrum no matter what. You know, even when the bulbs 
five years old is still putting out more full spectrum light than what an LED would because you only have to go between like 395. I forget what have the peak. We're talking nanometers or spectrum uh, wavelengths. So 395 nanometers. I forget what the cutoff is on all the, the higher wave, uh, the, the lower wavelengths is, but it's not, it doesn't go into the, in, into the infrared side. So you can get a good aesthetically pleasing light, but the benefits of those two wavelengths or multiple wavelengths that we're not getting out of the LEDs in time can be a problem. But short, you know, five, six years usually isn't an issue at all. And people still doing it. They've been growing coils in their LEDs for, you know, over a decade now. Okay. And the metal halides are a little bit warm though, right? Isn't that one kind of consideration? Back to the other question. The heat, everybody always, the LEDs were definitely, you know, supposedly more energy efficient. Well, the only energy efficiency you get off of the LEDs are watts a watt. So if you're burning 300 watts worth of LED and you're burning 300 watts with a metal halide, your electric bill is not going to change because the electricity being used. What you are going to get with a metal halide is a lot more heat. So the heat itself, you know, down here in Florida, you know, around the country, it's not as bad of an issue, but down here in Florida, you know, we're going to have um, more heat being put to the aquarium, which might be a little harder to maintain that temperature below, at, the, at the mark we want to keep, which I recommend between 76 and 78 degrees in, in, a reef, in a reef system. With the metal halide, that could boost your temperature in your aquarium. LEDs do put off some heat as well, but it's not that much. But the sacrifice that you have with the cost of an LED versus a metal halide and the cost of the heat from a metal halide, but the inexpensive part of actually replacing the bulbs and the fact that the metal halide will heat your water up where you probably will have to have a chiller on it, depending on the size of the aquarium. In most cases, you don't have that. You use something to chill the water on with LEDs. So that's pretty much the reason why people steal towards the LEDs because of it's supposedly saving money, but in reality, balancing everything all out, you spend more money on LEDs because of the initial cost with the LEDs and metal halides ended up being cheaper with the study that we did. So it's kind of weird how that all worked out. But again, it's, it's hard to get metal halides and T5s at most aquarium shops because it has shifted to the LED side of it. And as they evolve, we're going to start seeing all the infrared and the ultraviolet lighting and the wavelengths that we're looking for to create a true full spectrum lamp. Um, they work well. Don't don't take this as they're not. They don't work well because people are obviously keeping reef aquariums now for a long time with LEDs over top. Okay, that's great. Well, thanks for that kind of clarification. So, a couple more quick things, and then we're um, you know going to kind of leave some more information for our next podcast. But uh, pumps, pumps are obviously pretty important. What what are your uh, thoughts on pumps? Um, very, very important. I mean, one of the biggest misconceptions with the pump for the pump, your return pump going from your sump back up to your aquarium is, you know, it needs to match the, it needs to be 10 times what your water volume of your system is. And nowadays with technology and what they've been able to create with wave pumps, it's not as necessary for you to have that large return pump. Basically what I always say is, is you know, if you put that large return pump that's 10 times your total system water volume and say your sump is maybe exactly what's recommended for it, but the water volume going through it is, is so fast that it allows micro bubbles to go back into your system from the water falling, which is very important when the water goes, you know, skims the surface, goes down into the, into the system. It's mixing with air, which is helping to scrub CO2 out of your water. Then your protein skimmer scrubbing more CO2 out of your water. Having your return pump be roughly five times what your total system water is, volume is, will 
eliminate the chances of you having micro bubbles in, in you know, more cases than not. So I would say 90% of the time you won't have the micro bubbles unless you have a really small sump with a five time return pump. And that's more than enough to get the turnover that you're looking for. And then your protein skimmer has the ability to skim that water better as well. That's the other pump that's very important to understand is if your tank is 200 gallons, you need roughly 200 to 300 gallons of water running through your protein skimmer. If you go more than that, it's not really doing you any benefit because you want to be able to make sure that you're getting surface contact that's um, necessary with the micro bubbles that are inside the protein skimmer to remove nutrients from your water and scrub CO2 from your water. So when it comes down to the return pump, I'd say five times the, the total volume of your water is sufficient. When it comes down to water movement in your system, that small return pumps not going to move the water nearly enough to make the corals happy. So then you just get a wave pump system, which will then create, you know, there's a lot of different companies out there making wave pumps and the technology is so amazing compared to what it used to be. And the amount of water volume one pump moves versus what it used to be, it can set you up for a, a successful reef aquarium if it's done right and it's not overdone or underdone. So bottom line, depending on the type of corals you want to keep in that aquarium is going to determine the size of the wave pumps that you would purchase. And most aquarium shops will steer you in the correct direction, depending on what you're looking to do in your system. And if you go with, say, a large polyp stony coral reef, you don't nearly, need nearly the amount of water flow as what you do if you have a small polyp stony coral reef, which would be like um, acropora corals and uh, montipora corals, which are um, in very um, like tide zones where they're getting tons of weight action. So that can always be upgraded down the road if you're graduating and want to go to the more exotic or harder to keep corals as well. Okay, great. Now, you mentioned a little bit about temperature control. Let's maybe touch briefly on that. Uh, one more quick topic, evaporation, and then we'll, um, we'll kind of close it up. But yeah, tell us a little bit about the temperature controls. With temperature, of course, I think it's extremely important to keep your temperature of your system very consistent. You don't want huge fluctuations with the, um, with the, with the temperature of your water. I think the biggest issue in the past with metal halides was it would go really high during the day and then it would fall at nighttime. Now, in uh, most cases here in Florida, depending on what you keep your home at, you know, if you keep your, your home at like 80 degrees in the summertime, then your tank's going to run at 80 degrees. And personally, I think when your tank is at 80 degrees, the metabolism of the coral goes up. They require more. So you might need to put a chiller on your aquarium. So in most cases, you would take the, the return pump for your aquarium like from the sump. It would go into the chiller and back up to the aquarium. Now, if you're like me in my home, my wife likes to keep it like an icebox sometimes. Um, <laughs> you want to put a heater in your aquarium to make sure that that temperature doesn't fall below the 76 degree mark. So if you can keep your temperature, in some cases, you might need a chiller and a heater on your, on, on your system. Like we do here at the farm, we have heat pumps. So right now it's super cold out. I mean, it was frost on my windshield this morning. And, um, you know, we have heat pumps that are, you know, keeping our, our temperature at 76 degrees. And in the summer, you know, when it's hot out, like the day, the heat pumps might reverse and actually start chilling, but probably not at 65 out for the high today. But um, keeping it in that two degree range is very, very important. Um, huge fluctuations happen on the reefs in the wild. I've been there. I've seen it. I've been in the lagoons where it's 90 degrees and then the tide changes and all of a sudden you're like, oh, where did that cold water come from? It's like 68 degrees. So you have a 10, 10 to 20 degree fluctuations in the wild. But keep it consistent in your aquarium. It's not going to harm them having big fluctuations. But fish 
don't like those fluctuations nearly as bad. And the corals can handle it a lot better than fish can. So you always got to be mindful of every inhabitant you have in your aquarium. How's it going to affect them? So you try to keep things consistent. Consistency is key in an aquarium for success. You know what? I actually forgot. We did have to touch on the kind of mechanical filtration. So what are your thoughts on kind of keeping the particulates down? There's a lot of different theories from the old olden days of reef tanks to today. What do you think is the best way to handle that? I used to be so old school. I didn't even use filter socks, you know, and I just let the silt settle somewhere and then I would just suck it out with a, with a vacuum. But now, you know, I like my filter socks. I mean, 100 micron filter socks are a great way and that would go in your drain line that comes from your from your um, your drain would go into a filter sock. But now there's a new technology out there that's just absolutely amazing. So they call it filter rollers. It's automatic filter rolls. So your return line goes into this. And because it's a big roll of 100 micron uh, filter media, it moves extremely slow. So it actually doesn't give a chance to clog and then overflow and still dump that you know, particulate matter back into your system. It is some, in some cases I've heard that it cleans your particulates out too well. And some people I know, they run the, the filter roller for some at times, and then they don't run the filter roller because they want to help get some particulate matter. And it's actually um, with the filter roll, it helps keep your nutrient levels low because you don't have that particulate matter settling, creating phosphates and creating nitrates. So in some ways they're amazing in the perfect scenario, especially if you like to feed your fish and you like a lot of fish, they're great. You don't want zero, zero on nitrates and phosphates. You want to have some of them in there. So if you find that that's happening, if you have to happen to buy a filter roller, something you want to you know, incorporate, you know, not using 100% of the time. But the filter sock, a lot of people get lazy and they don't change their filter sock all the time. And they get full and they overflow, which, you know, puts more particulate matter back in the system. And that seems to be the way in most cases are because filter rollers can be, again, another piece of equipment that can be expensive when you're setting up your aquarium. But it does make things easier for you to help maintain parameters, especially nutrients, which can be an issue to a new new hobbyist because they are learning what to feed, how much to feed. Because you can't overfeed your fish. You can't overfeed your corals, but you can overfeed your aquarium. And overfeeding your aquarium is always misinterpreted as overfeeding your fish. Again, you can't overfeed your fish. They're only going to eat what they can eat. If your aquarium is not big enough or capable of absorbing anything that isn't eaten, then it gets broken down and it creates a phosphate and nitrate issue. So for sure, for particulate matter, you can also use a canister filter, which, you know, um, a fluval canister filter is a great way of, you know, keeping biological media as well as particulate matters, filtering them out of your aquarium. But the best way to do it is through your socks and your sump or an automatic filter roller that would be, you know, the most efficient way from what I've seen. My late friend, Jake Adams, God rest his soul, was just doing videos on that thing, on the filter rollers and how much he loved them. He said, everybody should be using them. And of course, I can't use them because nobody makes one big enough. <laughs> no, that sounds good. So I guess our last quick topic before we close up would be uh, evaporation. Maybe tell us a little bit about how you think the best handling of evaporation would be for uh, your hobbyist. For a new aquarist, an auto top-off is the easiest way to go with uh, maintaining evaporation. This keeps your salinity stable. And that can be, you know, there's a, multiple ways you can do 
uh, an automatic top off. You can have a float switch. You can have a little pump with a sensor that you know pumps water from an RO, a reverse osmosis reservoir into your aquarium to keep your water level and your salinity stabilized. We do things a little bit differently in here. We, um, as you get to be more of a seasoned reefer and you want to lessen your expenses on maintaining your alkalinity, your calcium, and your magnesium, I would recommend you combat your evaporation and those three parameters by doing a Kalkwasser dosing schedule. And um, that's something we can get into, Roy, down the road with the different ways of uh, maintaining parameters, but the parameters are super important. Just make sure your water level stays um, fairly consistent as well. And you won't ever notice it in your tank when you have a sump. It'll just be in your sump level where you have a mark for your water level. When the water goes below it, if you don't have an automatic top off, you want to make sure that you put, you know, the correct amount of water in there to get it to that line, that fill line you know, every day. And that's a matter of whether you do it in the morning, a little bit in the morning, and then again in the evening, or you have the auto top off system on it or a float switch on it so that you can just, it automatically does it for you. So there's, yeah, there's a lot of ways you can do it, but definitely important to keep your water level consistent in your system. Okay, great. Well, unfortunately we're out of time, but we will continue our reef and coral keeping series with part two. Chris will discuss aquascaping and water chemistry uh, as an overview next time for now thanks very much to our guest chris meckley and our producer mark winner for making this show possible chris any uh final words for this part one thank you and um i look forward to helping more briefers and more people want to get into this um as we keep going with this series it's gonna be fun awesome thanks again please be sure to check out chris's web links which will be found on his aquarium mania guest page if you have any questions comments or ideas for a show email me at drroy at petliferadio.com that's d-r-r-o-y at petliferadio.com until next time please be sure to visit your local aquarium stores and keep your tanks clean and your fish healthy and stay tuned for more of reef and coral keeping 101 let's talk pets every week on demand only on PetLifeRadio.com.